It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Back in 05, Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of and arrested him for dealing drugs. You saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all made up. Of course, a lot of accused men make that claim, but not many arresting officers agree. So you phonied the report? I did. I falsified the report. This is former Benton Harbor police officer Andrew Collins. Were you just trying to chalk up an arrest? Yeah, basically, the start of that day, I was going to make sure I had another drug arrest. And in the end, you put an innocent guy in jail? Correct. Yeah. You lost everything. I lost everything. My only goal was to seek him when I got home and to hurt him. Really? That was my goal. Eventually, that crooked cop was caught, served a year and a half for falsifying many police reports, planting drugs and stealing. Of course, Jamal was exonerated, but he still spent four years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Today, both men are back here in Benton Harbor, which is a small town, maybe a little too small. Hey, guys, thank you. Last year, by sheer coincidence, they both ended up at Mosaic, a faith-based employment agency where they now work side-by-side side in the same cafe. Oh, excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. And I said, honestly, I have no explanation. All I can do is say I'm sorry. And Jamel says that was all it took. That was pretty much what I needed to hear. Today, they're not only cordial. Saturday, we went to the trampoline park. They're friends. Uh, you know, we talk about life. Such close friends. Not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him. And I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that. Uh, he, I don't deserve that, you know? Did you forgive for his sake or for yours? No, for our sake. Not just us, for our sake. Jamel went on to tell me about his Christian faith and his hope for a kinder <laughs> mankind. He wants to be an example. So now he and Andrew give speeches together about the importance of forgiveness and redemption. I'll grab this, we'll set it over there. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds, what's our excuse? What a great story. It's a story of unity. It's a story that love wins the day, but... Uh... I also want you to recognize how quickly the reporter dismissed the faith of one man that led him to unity. Uh, it was the faith of one that was the availability of being forgiven by Christ, which he could forgive another whom he was deeply wounded by. And that's where unity begins with. You know, around here we believe in love, and we believe that love creates unity. Tom Rainier is a man that goes around the world. He is nationally known, actually, as being a fixer. He is a man that tries to make unhealthy churches healthy and fractured churches repaired and uh, come from broken to fixed again. He has shared over his lifetime of trying to make churches healthy the 25 silliest reasons churches have split. I'm just going to share with you just a, a few of them. One of them that he mentioned was that they couldn't figure out which green beans to serve at the church bazaar, so they decided to split and start another church. You know what the answer to that is? No green beans. That's the answer. Or how about this one? They couldn't figure out as a congregation if they should use the extra parcel of land for a playground or a cemetery. 
Man, that's an easy one for me. That's going to be a playground. If I want to have a future for a church, we're, we're, putting in a, we're putting in a playground, not a cemetery. Or how about the third one? The, the staff all resigned. A huge staff all resigned within one week after the leadership made a policy that they wanted all their ministers clean-shaven, even the women staff members. <laughs> so they left, and they started another church in town called His First Church of His Holy Beard. No kidding. That's a hairy situation. Come on, I had to float that one out. Was... <laughs> okay, those are a little funny, right? But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. If you've ever been through a church split... If you've ever been through division, if you've ever been through some kind of incinerary situation in the church, it's not funny. And some of you are here today because the church that you were at had pulled the rug out from under you when it came to doctrine. And the doctrine that they chose to replace it with is not one that you see as biblically fit. So, so you had no choice but to leave. And it caused a splintering in the church. Some of you are here today because a denomination had pulled the rug out from under you. And while they had claimed one thing, they, they now allow a tolerance of sin within maybe their pastorate or priesthood. And you know that doesn't align with the scriptures, so you had left because they weren't going to change. Maybe you're here because a key leader in your church had, had a moral failure and had broken trust. And it's all those things that add up to a fracturing of, of maybe even your faith, and it took you a while to get healthy. And now you're here just hoping that there is unity, that there is uncommon harmony found. You know, the Apostle Paul had dealt with this all through his ministry career as you look through the New Testament scriptures. He had dealt with churches that were fractured and were broken. One of those churches that he talks to is found in the church of Ephesus. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. It's the letter to the city of Ephesus, Ephesus of chapter 4. It's page 948 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. He's trying to unify a group of people that are completely different. They're different in economic scale. They're different backgrounds. They, they come from a different worldview. And yet he's trying to now unify them through this new gospel that they've heard, through this new God that they've accepted, the God named, named Jesus. And they're trying to unify one another. Ephesians chapter 4, let's start at verse 1. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, which Paul was a prisoner under Roman guard, under house arrest, he says... <coughs> I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Now, now catch up the characteristics he lays down that leads to a unifying body of believers. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord and one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And Paul starts to lay down these characteristics that help us to keep silly things from splintering us and major things from wrecking us. And he starts with this really simple characteristic that he wants the church to embrace. It's, it's called humility, and it's something that we have to fight for rather than fight against because we have to fight against our pride and fight for humility. But I'm telling you that a unified church is filled with humble people. And I think in a growing church like this that carries some influence, and, and maybe you have some reason to be braggadocious when you step out of this place, it's tough to always remain humble because you look around and you go, boy, look what we have built 
And humility comes when there's a recognition that we didn't have anything to do with this. That God has just worked through us to accomplish his mission and his goal. That God is the one that has allowed Bethany to see an increase and growth. You see, God delights when his people are genuinely humble. That's what the psalmist expresses. He says, for the Lord takes delight in his people and he crowns the humble with victory. And I know some of the reasons why we stay away from humility. We think we'll never find success. But the psalmist throws that in our face and says, no, when God recognizes that you're truly humble, that's when you're going to really see success. God's going to make sure that you experience victory in life when you humble yourself. You see, God has been clear from the get-go that he's not going to put up with the stuck-up. There is a, a great story that's found in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, about a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a guy that's very prideful. He looks over the city and the nation that he had built, the empire of Babylon. It had ruled the world at that time. He had the entire world under his thumb. And he looks out from his palace gardens and he says something to the effect of, is it amazing what my own hands have built for myself through my power and my strength? Uh, Let me just say, if you're in leadership, and you're looking at anything that you're in charge of or have authority of or responsibility over, to think that that was given by your own accord and your own doing, you're about ready to be humbled by a God that says, I gave you that. And a voice comes down from heaven, and the voice says something to the effect of, you're going to be humbled until you acknowledge that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms, that the Most High God has given you the power to lead people. And then God inflicted upon Nebuchadnezzar this very strange mental condition. Immediately, Nebuchadnezzar went insane, and he thought he was a cow. And he wound up in the fields, grazing on grass, His authority and his power were taken from him as everybody laughed at him. He was the national laughing stock. And it wasn't until he came to his senses and regained humility. And he looked up to the heavens. And here's what he said. Those who walk in pride, he, meaning God, is able to humble Friends, after he said those words, it says that his sanity was restored and he was given back the power and the position of kingship after he recognized that it was God that gave him, him those things first. Hey, all I'm saying is our humility is a direct result of remembering uh, that God brings us success to our lives. Humility is just a direct result of remembering that God gives us the ability to have success so if you ever think, boy, we've done some, something pretty amazing around here. No, we haven't. God has. A unifying church is a, a church filled with people who are, who are humble. But it's also a church filled with people who are gentle. You know, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church of Ephesus, he was trying to bring cohesion to a church that was rather fractured and was broken. And he says, you know what you need? You not only need humility, you need to be gentle with each other. Just gentle. Jesus expressed it like this. He didn't use the word gentle. He used the word meek. Uh, Meek means to have a bridled strength. When Jesus spoke about meekness, he wasn't talking about weakness. He was saying that it's a restrained strength. You're holding yourself back from the power that you you have. Uh, Meekness is the person that holds their tongue. 
when they've got an opinion to share, but they know that that opinion will, will affect and create a fire of division in maybe the small group. A meekness is when someone is able to, to hold their tongue uh, of rebuke, of pointing out sin, of being sharp and critical and hold their tongue back and to be gentle and to be gracious and to be forgiving towards the one that's trapped in sin. Hey, it's not a far stretch to say that we live in an age of tolerance, is it? I mean, everything goes, just accept me for who I am, don't judge me. After all, we all sin differently. And I think there's a little bit of truth to that, but Rick Warren, who is a popular preacher, he had written the book Purpose Driven Church, has pointed out that the problem is that tolerance has changed its meaning. It used to mean, I may disagree with you completely, but I'll treat you with respect. Do you remember those days? We disagree, but we'll be gentle towards each other. We'll treat each other with respect. No, now it's come to mean, you must approve of everything I do. And there's a difference, he says, between tolerance and approval. Jesus accepts everyone, no matter who they are, but he doesn't approve of everything I do. And see, this idea that gentleness is restrained strength doesn't mean that we stop in telling people the truth of God's word, of, start, of stopping to point out sin. You see, the Bible's a mirror, and it points out the flaws within us, the sin within us. Who, who looks into a mirror and doesn't make some kind of correction to themselves? No, we all do. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, it instructs us to preach the word and be prepared in season and out of season when it's hot to preach God's word and when it's not so hot, when people welcome it and when they don't welcome it, to correct and rebuke and encourage. You see, a lot of us, we get the correct and rebuke part right with a very sharp and critical tongue, we do that. But Paul says, you need to be gentle, you need to encourage them to do what's right, to have great patience with them as they change their ways, and with careful instruction, with a mixture of grace and with truth. We're to be gentle, and to be gentle means that you have some self-control. To be gentle means that you have some meekness, some bridled strength, and it only comes when you welcome God's Holy Spirit in your life and have a little bit of, of understanding of what God is getting at, what it means to be gentle so that unity is created. In Ephesians chapter 4, gentleness is knowing when and what to be angry over. Do you know when and what you should be angry over in the church? Some of you are like, well, man, I get angry at just about everything in the church. Well, there's probably only one good reason to get angry in the church, and that is sin. Especially the sin that is found within leadership. Like what should never be stood for, what you, you, should, you should never allow to happen is have a, a lead, positional, or perceived leader in the church to carry on with a habitual sin and never, never repent of it. Like, you should be angry about that. You should become inflamed with that. But let me tell you what you shouldn't be inflamed about. Waiting 10 minutes to get in or out of the parking lot. Or waiting in line to, to securely check in your child to make sure that they're safe in our children's ministry. Or when there's some kind of technical glitch that happens within the service. Or maybe when you have been double booked on the serving schedule. Those are inconveniences. Be gentle. Have restrained strength. A unified church is filled with patient, gentle people. Patience. Uh, filled with patient people. You know, sometimes a congregation doesn't always go to your liking. Have you figured that out yet? Oh, I thought I'd hear a lot more amens. 
You know, when we relocated here in 2013, I had asked the congregation at that time to be patient with me because there was so much to get angry about within the first year of relocation. Not only were, was, was the leadership asking a group of people to leave a building that has housed that congregation for 120 years and was an historical landmark and filled with all sorts of ministry memories within that place, people's funerals and marriages and celebrations all captured within that brick building. We also changed ministry direction and vision. And that Sunday before we made our move from Montgomery to here, I preached a sermon and it was... The, the stage was bare except for a bunch of moving boxes. Everything was already packed up and moved out. It was just kind of like when you go into a house and nothing's left but the nails in the wall. It was like that. I urged the congregation that over the next one year of being in this new building, that they'd be patient with me. Because while we might have things planned out, we don't have everything planned out. And so I said, would you just adapt this model that comes from Scripture with me here? Do everything without complaining or arguing. And you know what? As I look back over those years, they stayed positive. Like we were in a place where patience ruled the day. And their love for me and their love for each other became this great, uncommon harmony that people never experienced before in churches around this region. And they walked in within that first year and thought, how come this place hasn't blown apart? How come this place has been able to find cohesion and find glue? Well, it was real simple. We started becoming patient with one another that first year. You know, last week, Kelly and I, my wife, we had the opportunity, the blessing, to worship alongside of those at our Vincent's campus. Vincent's, may I say to you, stay positive. You know, not everything has gone right in that building. Some of you aren't aware of this, but for about the first few weeks, uh, they didn't have bathrooms that had doors attached to them. They had a bathroom monitor, Mark Myers, and he sat there with his little bathroom monitor sash, and he said, it's okay to go now, it's, you'll have a private atmosphere, but then they had a, a, a few Sundays where they had doors, but they didn't have anything to divide the stalls. You know, they still don't have bathrooms in the commons place, they're still using the, the restroom and the children's room. Vincent's, stay positive, let me tell you why. There are people coming from fractured churches, and the more that you're positive, and the more that you're patient with each other, they can see the beauty of the bride of Christ better. And some of you have found that to be true as you've walked in these doors. You have found a place that has uncommon unity, uncommon harmony, and it's a breath of fresh air for you. Friends, we have to work at that every single day to be gentle, to be humble, and to be patient with each other. Stay positive. Ephesians 4, the word for patience here, is really the word long-suffering, it's this idea that we're going to experience some trouble, and it's going to be a long set, a long term of trouble, but we're going to stick with each other, even in the midst of hard times. It kind of paints this picture of the mature living with the immature. And the painting really is that of a, an older dog that's lying on the floor, and that young pup that's nipping at that older dog's ear as he tries to rest. And that old dog just puts up with it. He puts up with the immaturity of the little pup. You see, God works with fools. God specializes in working with fools. Uh, fools in the pulpit, fools in eldership, and fools that come and join us for worship. God puts up with fools. And if God puts up with fools, 
Don't you think that we should put up with one another? You see, here's what Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says. It says, put up with each other. Put up with each other. I love the language. Just put up with each other and forgive anyone who does you wrong just as Christ has forgiven you. And I am so thankful that over the long haul of my ministry, you have put up with me. You know, my first year in senior ministry here with all of you, the first year, I was pulled over seven times by state troopers, three times in the church van with kids inside of it. Now, most congregations would have got together and said, hey, that new preacher, he's a liability, not an asset, get rid of him. Mm -mm. Yeah, I got to express to my wife and to my small group last week that I'm so thankful that you've been patient and have put up with me for the last 20 years. Yeah, well, you don't need to applaud that. In some ways, you're applauding yourself that uh, we've been patient with Matt. Yeah. Because the average pastor's tenure in a local church is 3.6 years. The unified church, friends, is filled with patient people. You know how you get uncommon unity? You know how you get uncommon unity to stick and to stay like glue? You have unconditional love in the pews. Because a unified church is filled with loving people. There is a four-letter word that ensures unity. That four-letter word is L-O-V-E. But here's what I found true in my life. I found that I'm like a tube of toothpaste. That whatever is inside of me is ultimately going to come out when the squeeze is on. When I don't get my way, when things seem to be inconvenient for me or someone else bumps me, the four-letter word that comes out of my mouth is an L-O-V-E. It's M-A-T-T. It's selfishness. And friends, the most powerful unifier we have is love. Jesus spoke of it, and he says this is the greatest quality that a Christian can possess. Uh, Jesus taught us that this is the best way, the most important way to do life, to love God wholeheartedly and to love people deeply. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, this simple phrase, let love be your highest goal. Like in your life, in your relationships, as you worship, in your small group, as you serve one another, as you come together and meet, let love be your highest goal. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote a famous chapter of scripture. You oftentimes hear it at weddings. It's called the love chapter. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I could have the eloquency of an orator and be able to mesmerize millions of people with one message and have people hanging on every single word of mine. But if I don't have love, it's all for nothing. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge. You know what he's saying? If I am the smartest person in the room, if I have the best IQ and the greatest education, and I've got uh, so many degrees after my name that they call me a thermometer. If I don't have, if I don't have love... It's, it's all for naught. He says, if I have faith that can move mountains, but, but do not love, I'm nothing. If I have like all the spiritual convictions in the world, but don't have love, it's for nothing. Then he goes on to verse three. If, if I gave everything to the poor, like he's saying, if I became the greatest and most powerful benefactor the world has ever known, if I gave away all the money that was ever in the world, but didn't have love, it would be for nothing. If I sacrificed my body, if I became a martyr for preaching Jesus Christ and sacrificed myself, my own body for, for the gospel. Then he goes to say, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. 
You see, you can have the elegance of an orator, the faith of a miracle worker. You can have the the knowledge of a genius. You can have the generosity of a billionaire. You can have the dedication and the sacrifice of a martyr. But if you don't have love, all it adds up to is a big, fat zero. And I'll be honest. I'll be honest. Sometimes I just don't love well. Okay, Evan last week told you about an email that he'd received, an email that blasted him for for not being as bold as they thought he should be in preaching of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Evan didn't tell you about that email was, I was copied on it. And I thought the email was, wasn't fully truthful. I thought the email was meant to wound. I thought the e- email was filled with an arrogancy. So I responded. <laughs> and while Evan knows how to turn the other cheek and be so gracious and understanding. I counterattack and throw uppercuts. <laughs> I'm broken. I need fixed. And uh, I wrote a response that uh, that person had said they would never come back to church. I made sure they would never come back to church. <laughs> and when I got squeezed, my friends, when I got squeezed that day, The four-letter word that came out of my mouth wasn't L-O-V-E. It was M-A-T-T. It was self-preservation. It was protection. It was to win. Because the fact is, I just don't love very well. Now, I've told you I don't. How well do you love? Because there's this little test that the Scripture gives to us, a, a very simple test, and kind of where we can understand and this meter about where we love the test is, consider others better than yourselves. Do you do that? I mean, others, just everybody. Do you consider everyone else better than yourself? Because this is how Jesus lived his life. He started off as the goal of his day to consider others, to, to make love his highest goal. When little children came to him, remember, the disciples pushed those children away and said, no way, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, has no time for children. And Jesus said, no, I have time. Let the children come to me. When the disabled... And the unhealthy pressed their way into the crowds. And the disciples said, get away from him. You, you're, you're, you're like filthy rags to him. Jesus said, no, I welcome them and I, I want to restore their health and their soul. Bring them to me. When the religious leaders, remember, ridiculed Jesus for hanging out with prostitutes and befriending tax collectors and being with notorious sinners, Jesus never allowed their ridicule to stop him from loving those who needed God's love the very most. Why? Because every day he considered others better than himself. Now think about this for a second. Of all the world religions out there, it is only Christianity that has such a great emphasis on love. Here's how Jesus said that we would all be identified. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if what? Let's just say it out loud together. If you love one another, you could ask anybody off the street who's never been in church, what are Christians supposed to do? And they'll probably tell you they're to love each other and they're to love this world. And I think the reason why we are so divisive sometimes as church people, as Christian people, is just because we are thoughtless of others just thoughtless, selfish. Like we'll argue about end time prophecy stuff. We'll argue about who the author of Hebrews is, or we'll nitpick about the style of worship, or would Jesus drive an SUV or a Prius if he were alive today? Like, is God an IU fan, a Purdue fan, a Kentucky University fan? He is neither. He is a Notre Dame fan. Everybody knows this. <laughs> and we, I think the reason why we debate 
And the reason why we divide is because it's so much easier to debate than it is just to simply love one another. To put aside our differences and to love one another in humility, in gentleness, in patience. You see, Jesus taught us these words, a house divided against itself, what? Cannot stand. That was Jesus, not Abraham Lincoln. Now, I know that unity just is not going to be had in all areas. Like, listen, unity is not going to be had when it comes to our opinions, is it? A couple weeks ago in my sermon, I had mentioned Christ's second coming as he comes to receive the church, his bride. And uh, it just reminded me of the differences that our pastoral care minister, Tom Watson, and I have on that event. While the scriptures kind of leave some unclear moments there, I'm one that believes a little bit differently than Tom on that. Well, quite a bit differently than Tom on that one. You see, I, I, I think Christ will come receive his bride but I think there'll be a time of tribulation, like some hardships that will come. I think there'll be a, a man called the Antichrist that will establish himself, and he'll say, peace and calm and safety. This world is a mess right now. Let's just settle down. And he said, the reason why we're a mess is because of those Christians. They won't tolerate anything, and they want to persecute us. But I think Christ will come and receive us. If you're to sum that up, I'm called a mid-tribulation premillennialist. Now, Tom, on the other hand, Tom thinks we're kind of like in a season of tribulation right now, that he believes that there's not just like one antichrist, it's just kind of the spirit of everybody that hates God. Tom would be called a non-tribulation amillennialist. You're going, I don't care. We call you a panmillennialist, that you hope it all pans out in the end. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to know that Tom and I can still love each other even though I'm right and he's wrong. You know, one of the mottos that we have around here that's existed in this congregation for almost 200 years is this, in essentials, in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, in all things, love. If you haven't recognized it yet, you hold two buckets in your hand, figurative buckets, one filled with water and the other filled with gasoline. And unifying people always know which bucket to use. When a unifying, loving person meets an incendiary, explosive moment that is tense and divisive within the church, he or she doesn't pour the gasoline bucket on it. No, they take the water bucket and they douse it to make sure that those flames are out and becomes the peacemaker. But those who want to stir up trouble in the church, those that want to cause chaos and heartache and, and, and wound, they throw the bucket that has the gasoline in it. They help to spread the fire of disunity. Remember what Jesus said about the peacemaker. He said, blessed is the peacemaker. What will they be called? They'll be called the children or the child of God. Happy are those who throw the water bucket because that's exactly what God does. You know, when I first came to Bethany, people left in droves. I didn't know if it was me. Didn't know it was, if it was the way I smelt or if it was past leadership, or just old heartache and hurt, I think it was a, a little bit of both. Not the smell so much, but both. <laughs> Some of we were sad to see people go. Like it broke our hearts when they said, we're, we're going, and we're heading to another church, and we would grieve together. And others said they were leaving, and we'd say, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you, man. Just, just go. 
And I think during that time, we had a very calloused heart. It became so callous for those that remained and watched that, that church splinter at the time that those who remained forgot how to effectively, gently, patiently love those that were leaving and love those that remained. And so in that bitterness, in that bitterness, we'd get together and we'd say things about people that had left like, well, that person was a problem anyway. Like they didn't help. They didn't serve. They were troublemakers. And then we'd say this term, and you may have heard it before, they are a blessed subtraction. Some of you might be here today because your past church thought you were a blessed subtraction. Let me tell you what God did on the hearts of that leadership and those that remained. God took that immature attitude and he created within us humility and gentleness and patience and bound us together by love and we recognized the errors of our ways and asked for forgiveness and found healing and a tender heart to be restored. And this little motto started to creep out in our leadership. That little motto was, there is no such thing as blessed subtractions. That God loves us all, and we're to love each other. Friends, Bethany Christian Church needs more peacemakers. More people who know how to throw the water bucket and put out the fire of disunity, put out the fire of gossip, put out the fire of anger, put out the fire of negativity. Peacemakers who will tenderly correct a brother and sister, not just rebuke, but tenderly correct. Peacemakers who know how to gently bring a hand of restoration back to those who are causing division or who are caught up into sin. Because when you're a peacemaker, when you bring peace amongst one another, you're just so close like God that you're like his kid, like his offspring. You're a chip off the old block. See, our sin, my friends, have divided us our sin has divided us from a God, has created disunity and division. Our sin has done that. And God said, you know what? I want peace between you and me. And so he went to great extremes. He, he laid down his only son's life so that you could find unity with God. And on a very brutal cross, God made peace with you if you would accept Jesus' sacrifice. God made peace with you through Jesus and the only way to have peace with God is to accept and to receive Jesus. Not just to believe in him, but to turn that belief into an actual action step of faith. And very, for the most part, for the very first step is the step of baptism. See, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this, We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. We have peace, not because of what we've done. We haven't solved the sin problem. We have peace because of what God has done through Jesus. And when you welcome Jesus into your life and receive him as Savior and Lord of your life, you will have peace with God. And the question today is, do you have peace with God through Jesus?